Micah chapter 7. We, we did start this some time ago and inter, intertwining weeks with there's other meetings of course meant that we didn't finish it all together but we've come now to the last chapter and if you haven't heard the other six well I don't know what you're going to do <laughs> you may look it up you may say Paul there and he'll get you a copy uh, but we have sort of given an overview of uh, of these chapters, maybe maybe done a couple of messages in chapter one, give the background, etc. But I've sought to give you a little overview. It's one of the minor prophets, as you know. Maybe maybe would have to say that uh, people uh, pass quickly over the minor prophets, even God's people, but there's so much in them. Um, we have highlighted a couple of verses that do stand out, uh, even in a little book of Micah, like like. For example, chapter 5, verse 2, the, the birthplace of the Saviour. We're coming up uh, to that season of time where that is remembered. Chapter 6, verse 8, he has showed thee, O man, what is good? What did the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Let's just read ver- uh, chapter 7 then. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the great gleanings of the vintage. There's no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first striped fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there's none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, the uttereth his mischievous desire, so they rob it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchmen and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look on to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets in the day that thy walls are to be built. In that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities, from the fortress even to the river, and from the sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. Feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvellous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. 
They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And I will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abram, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Just ending the end of the chapter. Do you ever think how we can sustain ourselves and keep going spiritually in a land that has deserted the Lord and under the sentence of judgment? I said maybe right at the start of our study that the little book of Micah comes very close to us because we see our own land replicated in many respects in what Micah saw in his day. And this is what he's speaking about now. And it isn't just expressions of misery and grief and becoming depressed is easy to do. He was one who learned to look to God, who enables us to win through even in such a day. There's the heartfelt cry that is found at the commencement of the chapter. He says, woe is me. Now, of course, the prophet Isaiah has heard the cry, the same cry. Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And for Micah, it isn't too dissimilar. It's just the same. For he laments over the desolation of the land. And the circumstances that he had to endure. And now he describes it in a very poignant manner. Because he likens himself to a gleaner. And a gleaner was one who was able to go into the harvest field. And there he would be able to gather a bunch of grapes. You see the laws in Israel were that when the harvesters went in, the gatherers went in. They were to leave the edges or the corners of the field. They were to leave those for the widows and for the poor. That's what Ruth did when she left the home that morning at the bidding of Naomi, to go even to that field. But of course, Boaz met her, and she was to gather among even the gleaners, the harvesters. But when Micah went, there isn't even a cluster of grapes there. There's nothing. And so he finds that it is desolate, no fruit to satisfy him. And what he pictures is the state of Judah. The fruit that he was looking for were those who were like-minded in the midst of such corruption. He wanted to associate with those who would encourage him, who would strengthen him as he would do to them. But he could find none. The land was desolate in his day. There seemed to be no godly, as you go into verse 2, or upright man left. He felt the isolation. Indeed, the good man is the man who loves mercy. I've already referenced to you and quoted that verse, chapter 6, verse 8. There's a very close connection between those two words. The good man is perished out of the earth. It's the same as mercy. There are those who are conscious that they live before God. And this gives a quality to all that they do. Don't merely live before men or neighbours or family. They live before God. The upright describes those who are honest. 
and they respect their neighbours. But such was the state of the land, none could be found. And the behaviour that was prevalent in those days is what Mecca proceeds here to describe. There, there was that selfish spirit that stopped at nothing in order to achieve its goals. The attitude was such that if it carried to its conclusion would result in blood being shed. He speaks of those lying in wait. Then they are likened to the huntsmen, the community that should have been a help to each other. Instead, or the very opposite. They're set at odds, each seeking to gain advantage over the other. They hunt every man his brother with a net. And Micah traces the social ills of his day, particularly to those who had the rule over them. You see, men and women, as you read the words of verse 3 and, uh, uh, and following, your picture there, your picture before you there is of the judges, of the princes. And they didn't give judgment in terms of what was just or what was right for the land, but they rendered judgment in terms of how much they received as a bribe. A payment of money secured the verdict in their favor, even among the judiciary. And when Michael looked for the best, it didn't amount to much. He likens him just to a briar, just to the best of a thorn hedge. Maybe due to their twisted behavior. You don't normally like to climb through a thorn hedge. You usually leave with a lot of it in you. Or an old briar. They have all entangled themselves in the existing corruption. But in the midst of verse 4, it seems that he changes. Because he says, The day of thy watchmen and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. The position of the watchman in those days could not be underestimated. Not only in guarding the streets at night from the thief and from the, those of crime and maybe even fire breaking out and all of that. But also they maintained a lookout on the city walls. And they watched out for to see against the enemy coming, whether it was by day or by night. And so it is with the prophets in a number of places. They're compared to the watchmen. Let me just give you a couple. Jeremiah chapter 6. Again, not too far away from the time of Micah. Look at verse 17. He says, Also I have set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. Ezekiel chapter 33, just to give you one other, verse 6 and 7. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. The watchman saw it happening. He saw the danger, but he didn't raise the alarm. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. You could say your pastor is a watchman. That's my remit. It is to warn even uh, men and women from the scriptures. 
to warn edify the people of God but especially of course to warn the unbeliever of the, the road that they're traveling on and to that lost eternity and I, I can be pictured if you like standing on those walls and sounding the trumpet the watchman was very important in Micah's day the prophets that God had sent as watchmen had to warn the people when he would intervene in judgment and Micah now says that day has come. That day has come. The day of God's visitation in this instance, it wasn't something on friendly terms. But it was of a superior coming to inspect the affairs of his subjects, to see it all was well, to act appropriately if it was not. And in anticipation that the people's conduct would not find approval from God. He states at the end of that verse. Now shall be their perplexity. The Lord cometh. The watchman. He then proceeds to expose the basic relationships on a personal level. Things were wrong. They are wrong with people at large. He, couldn't really depend on others for help or for assistance. Fabric of society had broken down. You have to pinch yourself that you're not speaking about today, aren't you? And that's how it was in Micah's day. Fabric of society has broken down, even to the point where the man and the wife are not to be trusted. The tensions that were caused in the family setting are they're just laid bare. Verse 6, for the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Don't we read about those sort of things in the last days? Prior to the Lord's return. You see the word dishonoreth there? It literally means thinks as a fool. Or calls a fool. The respect for elders is gone. Things were that bad and indeed tension leads to warfare because it says a man's enemies are the men of his own house. And if you turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 verse 35. You hear the Savior speaking. He said that a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's verse 36, 30, verse 35. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own house. So you see, they were thinking that the Lord had come to give peace. The gospel brings division. There's division in our congregation. There's division in homes tonight. Some are in Christ, some are outside, still in their sin. There's division among friends. And the Lord quotes from Micah. But from the midst of such despair, suddenly the prophet speaks of that which is attitude, about his own attitude or his own response to it. And he says in verse 7, he says, Therefore, on account of what I just told you, on account that the land is desolate, on account that the judiciary is rotten and corrupt, 
on account that the social fabric is broken down even among the family unit. On account of that, he says, therefore, I will look unto the Lord. Verse 7 has got to be the verse that stands out. Underlineth. His faith looked up to God. It was faith that anticipated relief. It anticipated the reality of God's control even over those dark circumstances. And that look to him anticipates his intervention. Just like the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. He says this. He says, ye also, I beg your pardon, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Second Timothy 4, in the words of verse 8, is another that he writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The great anticipation. The great hope. And he says in verse 7, he says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. As one of God's watchmen, he waits for his intervention. And men and women, when you come across that, that, that thought or that idea of waiting in the scriptures, it indicates a personal inability to bring about any progress. We can't do it. You know, that great verse, of course, I'm just coming to mind, Isaiah 40, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. We can't do that ourselves. But there's a blessing in waiting upon God in prayer. That's why we emphasize and emphasize and underline and encourage you to be in the place of prayer. Even at the point of repetition, I, I, I don't apologize for that. I want to see the prayer meeting room filled. Because we're waiting upon God. And it, it indicates that personal inability. But you know, something else to waiting is an expression of God's capability. To hear and to answer and to help. Divine deliverance was on the way for what was a threatening situation. He says, I will wait on the God of my salvation. Psalm 130, verse 5 is a lovely verse, a lovely psalm, actually, a short psalm. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his hope, in his word, do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. You might have read that. You might have said, what? What's he getting at? Context, of course, is the sentry that was on duty. There was four watches through the night. And the one on the fourth watch was looking for the sun to rise. And when he saw the sun arising, that meant he was off home. And the psalmist says, I wait more than they that watch for the morning, more than they that wait for the breaking of the dawn. And in thy word do I hope. 
Men and women are we those who can say we're waiting on the Lord. Not only in the, in, in the sense that we are waiting on the Lord to take us home someday or come back one day. We're waiting on the Lord to answer prayer. Those petitions that we have brought to him many a time. For that soul, for that particular aspect of the work, are we waiting? Are we waiting for his intervention? Because when God intervenes, everything changes. He says in verse 7 again, My God will hear me. You, nearly, you can nearly take that text of Scripture and do a full message on it. Maybe two or three. My God will hear me. God was sovereign over the situation, particularly in identifying with Micah. And because of that union and that relationship, he was sure his prayer would be answered. So it is with God's people. Micah, therefore, wasn't given over to despair. He wasn't given over to helplessness. He wasn't even given over to the spirit of apathy, but an intense eagerness and waiting upon God for his response. From verses 8 to 13, the context is that God's chastisement has already come upon them. There's a change with the people. They're now repentant. And they're waiting, believing that God would turn their captivity. They've become that scorn. They've become that laughing stock that we touched on and what Micah said in, in the previous chapter. But you know they say in verse 8, as if they're speaking through God's servant Micah. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Zion is confident in a better day when the Lord would bring them out and their enemy would be shamed. Remember, the Assyrian is all around the city. The chastisement of the Lord now in these verses has come. But their hope is in the Lord. The Lord would vindicate his people. And the final verses, there's that expectation of the people endorsed by the Lord himself. That change was coming. Verse 11. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, from the fortified cities, from the fortress, even to the river, from the sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. Change was coming. Verse 10. There's a rebuilding work. The walls will be built. It was a day also of extending their boundaries. Verse 11. 12. The boundaries are extensive. And men and women, you look at Israel tonight, you don't see those. The enemy is encroaching. But that promise will be ultimately fulfilled when Christ comes back. And he sets up his kingdom. And it will be extensive. It will be a throwback to the days of David and Solomon. It will be from the mountains in the north. To Sinai in the south. It will be from the Mediterranean Sea on that side. To the Persian Sea on this side. That's quite a lot, scope of land. And the chapter in the book ends. 
on a confident note of expectation based on the promised deliverance of the Lord. And Micah here gives voice to their prayers and to their praise. The day of deliverance is yet to come, but faith finds in the words of the Lord a more than sufficient guarantee that his salvation will come. Verse 14 and 15 is considered a prayer. A prayer by the people and the response of the Lord gives an answer. The people are the flock. The Lord is the shepherd. And as with other places in the book, you'll notice that in God's answer, there's reference looking back in their history to when they were delivered out of Egypt. Feed thy people with thy rod, flock of thine heritage which dwell solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan, the east of the Jordan, and Gilead, the other side, as in the days of old. And the Lord says, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. As it was back then, the nations around them saw God's deliverance for those people. They will see it again. And of course we know the wondrous things that God did in the land of Egypt. We describe them as the ten plagues. And they're going to see wondrous things again. And the enemy will be ashamed. Their hands will be upon their mouth. I used that illustration one other time. You know when there's a shame you cover your face. What's the picture? Their ears will be deaf. They'll refuse to listen to the news that reaches them of the reversal of the fortunes of Israel. Their enemy will experience utter humiliation. In the words of verse 17, they're just likened to the serpent. The serpent licks the dust. God cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. On thy belly. That suggests to me, I probably brought it out before, that before sin entered into the world, the serpent was upright. But God cursed the snake. And upon thy belly he should go. And I had the opportunity to go to Kenya. And we were on our way home through a national park. I saw a snake. I tell you, it's one of the most fearful things I've ever seen. And I was in the midst of a car. But this thing standing up. Just in the attack position. Slithered way on down. Away it goes. And there was a brave door between me and it. But I tell you. It brings home the reality of the serpent. But the enemy is just like likened to the dust, likened to the serpent in the dust. They'll crawl upon their belly. The closing verses, there's praise for the one who is incomparable. Here's a verse again that maybe stands out to you, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, that passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. There's none like him. Did any of you ever remember what I said that the name Micah means? It means who is like the Lord. And there's an obvious allusion here in these words. Who is a God like unto thee? 
It indicates the uniqueness of the one true and living God. It echoes really what Moses said when they crossed over the Red Sea, going back in their history again. And he said, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? But you know, men and women, the greatest wonder of it all is not his deliverance and liberation of the people from their enemy, but it's his liberation that he grants to them from the effects of their sin. For it goes on to say, He pardoneth iniquity. He passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He pardoneth iniquity. That's what God did. And we've seen it in our studies on Sunday morning. That's what God did to Israel when they'd committed adultery with a golden calf. He pardoned their iniquity. And he went with them when he wasn't going to go with them. And Moses interceded as the mediator. And he said, accept thy presence, go with us, carry us not up hence. And God pardoned their iniquity, even of that great sin. And here's the greatest deliverance of all. And you see in the words of verse 18 and 19 of that final chapter of Micah, there's three words that is used. Look at it. Pardoneth iniquity. By the transgression, 19, he cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Three words, sin, transgression, iniquity. Describes the wrong that Israel had committed against their God. Sin, deviation from right. Transgression means rebellion. Iniquity, missing the mark, missing the target. The occurrence of all of these words intensifies the evil of their past. But you know it also magnifies the unmerited graciousness of God. He pardons. He forgives. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He's justified in his anger, but his chastisement doesn't uh, continue indefinitely. It gives God greater satisfaction to extend mercy. He's a merciful God to take back into his favor those who have strayed from him. Your people, the Savior's love never changes for his people. They are able to look forward to a full and unrestricted enjoyment of recovered fellowship with him. He's the victor who crushes his people's sin and ensures that it is no longer their master. Just listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. He says, Ye were the servants of sin. Now you're the servants of righteousness. And a comparison is given again by Micah of what God did to Pharaoh and his armies. So he does to our sin. What did he do to Pharaoh? And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's what he did with them. They're like stone. All of his armies. They sank to the bottom of the Red Sea. 
Just as the Egyptians were prevented from catching up with Israel in order to overturn their deliverance. That's what Pharaoh was about. To get them, bring them back again. So the freedom of his people will not be marred by some consequence of, of their past sin catching up with them and spoiling the delight of God's provision for them. You just think of this. Not one Egyptian was spared. Not one Egyptian survived. So not one transgression. That's what he's done for us in Christ. All our sins, all our transgressions have been cast into the sea, in the depths of that sea. God does this for his people because he's a covenant-keeping God. As he said to Abram, as he taught Jacob, truth and mercy are met together in Christ. Psalm 85, verse 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Or you know the way John puts it? John puts it in John 1, verse 17. He says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's why God can pardon our iniquity. That's why he can cast all our transgressions into the depth of the sea. All because of Christ. The covenant of grace. Gave his own self. He gave his life's blood. To pardon every one. Of our transgressions. No matter what time passes. God's word. And God's oath are unchanging. And they're encouraging. And men and women. It's impossible. For God to lie. Impossible. God's word and oath is unchangeable. And it's on that faithful note that Micah's book closes. What God says, he will perform. May our prayer be, many you can, maybe you can glean many a wee truth out of that chapter, but may our prayer be this, of God's intervention in these days and intervening in mercy and in grace because if he doesn't intervene in grace and mercy he intervenes in judgment there's no other option and may we see God intervening even locally, parochially in the congregation here we might know his intervention in mercy and grace in these days. I trust the Lord will bless even that little word to your heart tonight and indeed the study of the book of Micah. Three hundred and